0: to Inside the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen and in each episode, I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of a top college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and so will be full of behind the scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips that will help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation with the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Nick Stroll, the former Senior Assistant Director of Admissions at Yale and a former academic advisor in the College of Letters and Sciences Honors Program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Nick and I will discuss strategies for success for first-year college students. So we had you on the podcast last year for a very, very successful episode on Yale, um, and everybody loved that. But today, we want to talk about that other role, that academic advisor role. So why don't you just start by telling me what that role entailed?
1: This was um, a role that I was in after um, I worked in admissions at Yale. I, after working at Yale, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to pursue a Ph.D. in history and educational policy studies. And while I was pursuing my Ph.D., I had the opportunity to work as an academic advisor with the College of Letters and Science Honors Program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, working with undergraduates um and that's a long title but what that meant was as as some of your listeners may know large universities like wisconsin have more than one undergraduate school or college. Uh, Wisconsin, I think, has seven of them, which includes a business school, an engineering school. Also, a co- the College of Letters and Science is the main kind of liberal arts college. And probably about 50% of undergraduates are in the College of Letters and Science pursuing a range of gre- uh, degrees from the humanities to the social sciences to the natural sciences. And I actually worked as an academic advisor, in the honors program for the College of Letters and Science, each college had had its own honors program. Uh, so, in this honors program, this was at the each you know school. Many different schools, and especially large public universities, have an honors program of some kind. In some cases, you you might be selected for that honors program as part of the application process itself. You might be pre-selected by the school. In the case of Wisconsin students could apply for the honors program after they were admitted to the University of Wisconsin. And we had about probably 1,200, 1,300 students in the honors program itself within the College of Letters and Science. I was one of three advisors. And so I served students within that honors program pursuing a wide range of majors, all the way from first-year students to graduating seniors. Much of the work, though, was often focused on working with first-year students because we worked with students during their orientation before they started their freshman year each year. So I worked a lot with students who were in their first or second year as they were just getting started exploring majors uh, and things like that.
0: And are there any interesting like intersections or anything of significance that you noticed between your work in admissions and
1: in advising? It was there were a lot of interesting intersections, in fact. I think that one thing that I realized as an advisor was that once students arrive on campus as a first-year student. Um, they are still very much exploring what they want to do I think you know as as students are preparing their college applications they're often asked to explain what they want to major in and it can seem like their plans should be firmly in place by the time they arrive at college and in some cases students do have plans that are firmly in place but in many cases uh, students do not and so those first that first year is, Sometimes stressful, sometimes exciting um, moments of exploration, uh, finding new topics, finding new fields, exploring new fields. I think it should be one of exploration. We also find students who who come in as a first year student to college when when they think they they firmly have an idea of what they want to study, and then they take an exciting class in some new area and they totally change their mind. And so they're like, oh my goodness, I need to revise my plans, you know, my my whole career and life plans, even. Um, and that can be, you know, a little bit of exciting, a little bit exciting, a little bit stressful, but one one thing that really impressed upon me was that that first year of college is really um, a time to kind of begin your college, you know, your your college thought press process anew. Now that the applications are done, once you arrive on campus, open your mind once again to all the different possibilities that might be there.
0: And we were discussing actually before we started recording, just that COVID has had such a significant impact on like this cohort of incoming students, people who came in before them, the people who are coming in after them. They've missed such like valuable like social academic extracurricular experiences. Um, So how do you think that's going to affect students as they're coming in? And like, how can they maybe counteract any gaps that they might have in like in knowledge or skills?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. That's going to be something I think every student should think about. Um, No matter if they were incredibly successful in high school, no matter what challenges or not they may be facing, it's, you know, we're still finding out what the effects of, of COVID have been and will be on students who are graduating high school and coming to college. Um, I can tell you just from, I've been reading reports here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I've read just articles in our local newspaper, also have kept in touch with people that work on campus. And I think People at the university, and I think at other universities, are seeing that that freshmen and first year students are arriving, um, and they're really struggling with with college adjusting to college level work more so than in the past. There's always going to be an adjustment, but because of the last few years of COVID and the adjustments I think that high schools have made to just deal with the pandemic and remote learning and all that, have not given high school students the chance to kind of practice some of the study skills that they may need at college. Many high schools have, you know, have have cha- I know high schools in my area have um, allowed students to retake tests as many times as they'd like, or they've changed the grading system so that they students can get an A without actually, you know, doing as well as they might have in the past on high stakes tests. And while that has many benefits and is was necessary, I would say, in many cases, and perhaps is even better for students, you know, mental health at the high school level colleges I think have not adjusted as much to their you know to what the, the needs of these students and so partly I do hope that colleges will make some adjustments but at the same time for now students who are coming in they'll just need to be aware that you know it's important not to fall behind early you know if you fail your first exam in many high school in many college classes they're not going to be an opportunity for a retake um, if you're struggling and don't understand something it's important to reach out early for help and this is something I'll talk about I think in, uh, as we discuss more questions, it's really important to reach out to your advisors at college early uh, before you start encountering problems because they can really help you troubleshoot some of the challenges and minimize some of those obstacles as opposed to when you, if you meet them later with a big problem, there's only so much they can do.
0: And we'll be discussing like specific support systems later, but I think it's also like good to consider that in my experience, like college is like really like trial by fire. Like it took me sophomore year, like constantly being like, 800 pages behind on my reading about louis the 14th to like really develop great like skimming synthesis skills i remember like i was in an honors program and i had to finish my last class senior year because i'd studied abroad and then i had internships so i had to finish that last class my last semester senior year um and the other students were all freshmen and the teacher kind of like came in the first day and was like okay like your final is like a 20 page paper and i was like my last semester like that like you got that and like the freshmen were like they were just sweating they were like 20 pages but like you do adapt trust me like one day like you will too be like yeah I can write 20 pages you just kind of have to like suffer for it
1: first a little right and I would say that and this is something we may talk about further, but it's important to ask for help. Um, I think especially with a lot of the students that I work with at InGenius and that I've worked with at places like Wisconsin or Yale, for example, I mean, they're all really successful high school students. You know, they're ambitious, they're hardworking, they're very smart. And they've, many of them, have been able to do well at high school They're with perhaps not use implementing all the study strategies they might need to implement in college. And so I was certainly when I was a student at Yale, I met many students who came into Yale with straight A's from high school. They worked really hard, but they also weren't necessarily in, Yeah, you know, um, they didn't have classes in some cases that challenged them in ways that their college classes. Were. And so they still had an adjustment period. And some of them, because they never had to ask for help in high school, because things either came easily to them or or they never struggled so much, um, they, they don't know how to ask for help at college. And so as soon as you kind of, if you're encountering those struggles in your first semester or first year, it's really important to ask for help. And we can talk further about kind of where to do that and how to do that. But just asking for help in the first place is something that a lot of, I think, high achieving high school students haven't had to do until they get to college.
0: And for me personally, that was actually a major benefit of being in an honors program, if that's something students do have the option of applying to, because rather than being in big GEs, like with like, 200 students. Um, they were all like much smaller, more specific classes with like 10 students, 20 students. And just like the teachers were, you know, much more invested in the topics because they like handpicked the topics. They were more collaborative. The other students were interested in the topics. Like everything from the professor to the students, like everybody was interested and engaged and they wanted to help each other. Whereas like in high school, it might be more common for like teachers to be like a little more checked out. I mean, I went to a public school, I had classes where there was like 50 students for one teacher in college, just professors and support systems, like they want to help. They've like come Mm -hmm. into higher education because they're passionate about it.
1: Yeah. And it's something to look for, you know, as when we're, you know, talking to students, it's something to look for as you look at colleges and think about best fit for you. If you do attend a large university and I can use Wisconsin as my example, but it would be similar to, you know, Michigan or University of California, Berkeley or North Carolina, any of those kind of major schools you might be looking at, Look for programs like an honors program or like a first year. There's many first year specialized programs from learning communities to freshman seminars. I can tell you at Wisconsin, for example, in the honors program, I always encourage students to take an honors psychology course, first year psychology course offered through our program because the first year psychology course at the University of Wisconsin for all students had probably five or 600 students in it. It was a big, huge lecture. It met twice a week. There were no teaching assistant sections. So students just attended the lecture and they took probably, you know, two major exams midterm and final, and that was their grade. And you can imagine for students not used to that from high school, that would be a big challenge. But in the honors program, students could have the option to take an introductory psychology course that was just, I think it was limited to 35 students with the professor. And so it was more of a seminar style. And you can imagine how being in a small class of you know 25 to 35 students is going to be much different than being in a 600-person lecture. And that was some, so that was something um, for a student attending Wisconsin, I would always recommend looking for those, those opportunities to have smaller, kind of smaller classes, uh, more interaction with professors. They do exist uh, even at large schools.
0: What misconceptions do you find that incoming freshmen bring with them to college? And also maybe what misconceptions do parents find because we do have parents listening to us?
1: Right. Yeah, I think that probably actually one misconception that that parents and students, I think share is that, and I would, I would notice this during the first year orientation sessions in the summer, is that most students and families expect that most of the students' classes will be in their major field. And so if a student's coming in and is thinking, I'm going to be a biology major, they're imagining that most of their classes will be in biology. And that is simply not the case. At a typical university, whether it's Wisconsin or Yale or Harvard, probably about 30 to 35% of your classes, maybe one third of your overall classes will be within your major. And that's a good chunk. But what that means is that two thirds of your classes will be in classes outside of your major. And so that leaves lots of room to double major, uh, to include minors. It also just leaves a lot of room to explore new areas. for, For example, at Yale, I was a history major. I took a lot of history courses because I liked them, but they still only consisted of about Certainly, no more than one third of my classes, and that meant I could take a bunch of courses in economics, or political science, or literature, or even science classes that were of interest to me, or that related to a particular career or other academic interests I had. And so, students sometimes don't understand that they can explore. They have time to explore in those first couple of years. I think um, parents sometimes get worried when they see that exploration, because if a student says, "You know, I'm a, I want to be a biology major and I want to go to med school." The parent might be like, well, why are you taking this sociology class? Don't you need to be taking you know, your pre-med requirements? And I think that uh, both parents and students can understand that there's room for both, especially in those first couple of years. And in fact, for med school, you are required to take some other you know, courses in other subjects. So the major courses students can explore and they should exp- because you'll the first first couple of years are are the moments when you will find something new by the time you get to your junior and senior year in college uh, you will have to start focusing more on graduate school or careers and taking and and completing your major requirements so You'll have fewer opportunities. So take those first couple of years to really explore some new classes. I would always tell students, take, take a course in a field you'd, you've never heard of or never even expected that looks interesting because uh, you might find something that's frankly life-changing. One other misconception, I think, is that a lot of students, this is probably a feeling that a lot of students have felt before, is that when you arrive at college, again, whether you're at Wisconsin or Yale or whatever it may be, it, it can feel like everyone else is a lot smarter than you or better prepared or somehow knows their way around. And in some cases, that's true. Maybe there's students whose like parents went to the college or they had an older sibling go to it, and they just really know a lot about it. But it—it it can. there's definitely that feeling of kind of that... I'm behind, or I'm out of place. That you might feel in that first year, I particularly noticed it among first-year students, and that that again is just not the case. That is a, a psychological feeling, and it's important for students not to take that personally and to realize they aren't people aren't smarter or better prepared than them. Uh, and that if they have questions, that they should ask, uh, and that there's everyone really has questions about what to do. and others may be, you know, classmates may may think they know something, but in when in fact they they don't. So, don't be, you know, intimidated by being part of a really, especially going to a very selective university with students who've been very high achieving in high school. They have just as many questions as you.
0: I was very intimidated when I first got to USC because people would, you know, people like especially freshmen have like a tendency to like kind of brag, to kind of like Make up for maybe feelings of like insecurity a little bit. Um, so people would be like, you know, I got a 36 on the ACT. I got into like three Ivy League schools, but like I decided to come here and I was like, oh my God, I didn't get a 36 on the ACT. Like, what am I doing here? But like that stuff like doesn't like necessarily correlate to like how you'll actually do in your classes socially. You all got into the same school for a reason.
1: Right. It's it, That's exactly right. That's what I would often say as a Yale admissions officer. We know when we would meet students on admitted students days, there'd be students who'd be like, why did you select me? And I would say, first of all, I didn't personally select you. We all did, but we don't, we didn't select any student that we weren't confident, fully confident would be successful there. And, you know, students are successful in, in different ways. And so it really is, it, it's, a, that's one of the psychological challenges of college. It's, or and really starting anything new whether it's a new job or whatever is just, just realizing that there's a learning curve you know you have your own assets and skills and reasons you were selected students may be talking about their, you know, test scores or, or where they got in because they themselves are insecure about their place and they're trying to make themselves feel confident and better about it. Uh, so ask, again, asking for help is probably my biggest piece of advice. It would be my answer to probably a lot of the questions, you know, you may, you may ask in terms of first year advi- advising, but that's actually a life skill you'll find that's not just useful for college, but after college as well.
0: What are the biggest mistakes that you find students are making during their first semester, especially, but then also just like their first year of college?
1: Yeah, I'll go back to just a couple couple of things I just mentioned. One would be that first and foremost is not asking for help when you encounter trouble. Uh, When you, you know, if you you fail that first exam or bomb that first exam in a class, don't just hope that it's going to get better uh, or the next one will go better. Take some active steps to change your approach and change your strategy. And, and do some things that maybe you've never done before, like going to talk to the professor at office hours, um, or talk, if you're in a large class, talking to your teaching assistant. The worst thing you can do is do, is do nothing and hope that it can get better. Uh, so asking for help. Um, and again, that can refer also to mental health challenges or any other challenge, social challenges. Maybe you have a roommate that is difficult to live with for a variety of reasons. Try to take some active steps to see if you can ask others for help. Um, that would be number one. Number two would be, again, not exploring new areas while you can in those first couple of years. So if you come in and you, even if you're dead set on being a biomedical engineering major, and you know that that's what you want to do as a career, maybe you know you want to go to medical school, that's fantastic. But you'll have plenty of time to specialize in that in your upper level undergraduate courses. So take those first couple of years of college, again, to take some courses and explore some areas which are new to you. I promise you that they will add to your your work within your own major and your career path, and they will make you an even stronger student and a better thinker and better leader. So take some time to to try those different classes in those first couple of years. Those are probably the biggest mistakes that students do. they not asking for help and and not taking the time to explore new areas while they can.
0: I also think students need to be persistent and know to ask for help like multiple times because like sometimes the first person you ask for help isn't going to help you, like maybe... Um, The Student Help Center is like not being great about therapy, your RA isn't like being super helpful about your roommate, like your TA isn't helping you, but, you know, you can always escalate that from the TA to the professor, the RA to whoever like manages that building. You know, Mm -hmm. like if you need help, like keep pushing, like there are support structures, which is my next question. Mm -hmm. What are the support structures available to students at most schools?
1: Yeah, there's lots of different layers to this first of all, there'd be academic support structures. Those can come, you know, at most schools, you'll have, you will have an academic advisor sign, assigned to you. That could be one person who would probably be listed on your, you know, on your online portal, you know, as a new student, you'll have a contact information for an advisor, or it could be an advising office. Hopefully it will be a person, um, but if not, that it would be an office, maybe an office for first-year students. In, at Wisconsin, just to give the example, all honor students were assigned to the honors advisors, so they knew that, any of us three advisors could help them. Um, students in the College of Letters and Science, if they had declared a major or planned to, they might be placed with that advising group. But if they're undecided, they'd be placed with a group of other advisors. So you'll have, a, you'll have an academic advisor. One piece of advice I would say would be to meet with them early, early in your college career, sometime during your first semester. Make it a goal to meet with an academic advisor, even if you are not struggling. Because the academic advisor can help you make a multi-year plan, they can inform you of any important major or degree requirements that you should be sure to hit, and they can help you head off any bigger problems that may come down the road. I think when I was an advisor, I would have, you know, I would have time to meet with students every day. And the vast majority of students that I met with were having challenges that had, and problems that, that had started, you know, weeks or months ago. And they were coming to me because the the problem had become big enough that they now it was overwhelming them or they couldn't solve it. Or in terms of a class, they were failing a class and it was, you know, November of the first semester and they didn't know what to do and they wanted to drop the class. And at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't help them much with the problem because it was too late. I could help them drop the class and then plan going forward. But if they had come to me in September or October, we might have been able to take some other steps to come up with a different outcome. Similarly, I might, you know, I might meet with a student who's in their second year and was, had maybe missed a key requirement for their for their major or degree that they could have figured out if they'd come to me the year before. Um, so again, come, go visit your academic advisor early. That's my piece of advice. Don't wait till a problem develops. Uh, that's one layer. The other kind of, um, there's also going to be advisors, as you mentioned, like an RA, Someone who will be in your dorm or housing, if you're on on on-campus housing, and most first-year students are, there'll be people to support you there. This could include, you know, mental health counseling. Uh, Many schools now have become much better about making mental health resources much more accessible. They, there might, on campus, there might be, you know, drop-in hours for, to meet with a counselor where you don't need to make an appointment. This is, again, a great, um, a great resource for students who who don't know if they have a, a problem, you know, but just want to talk to somebody. It's a great first step to be able to just go into these drop-in hours, talk with a professional, and you don't have to go make an appointment, you know, two weeks in advance or pay a fee or something like that. So look for those sorts of things. But the other support structures I would encourage all students, all first year students, to look at are what are some special programs designed for first year students at your university? Uh, at university at Wisconsin, for example, there were in addition to advising. There were learning communities, which are kind of like, um, you know, first-year dorms, which were had a theme associated with them. There was a, a bio house. There's a business, you know, dorm. And you could choose to live in this learning community with other students who shared that interest. Sometimes there's a language dorm. And that would be a great way to meet a small group of people and be part of a focused community. Again, there'd be some faculty advisors and others associated with it. There's also, there were things called first-year interest groups where you know, if you're interested in a certain field, you could take classes with a small group of people as opposed to the big introductory courses. Um, fresh, some schools have freshman seminars just for freshmen so that freshmen don't have to just go to big lecture classes. There's, all sort, there, there's lots of kind of first-year programs. And so wherever you go, I would, you know, Google first-year, what first-year programs do you have? Look at them and definitely join them because those will ensure that um, there will be, you know, faculty and advisors who are kind of keeping a close eye on you And it will ensure that you are also getting to know a few classmates pretty well in that first year. Um, Those are even more important at big universities as opposed to small ones.
0: And similar to our earlier discussion, I think also like everybody, especially like first semester freshman year, like everybody pretends like they're having like the time of their life. And that's like not necessarily true. I remember feeling like so like, oh, like. Everybody's doing better than me. Everybody's happier than me. And then, like maybe like sophomore, junior of college, everyone, all my friends had been there. Like, oh my god, like yeah, I hated first semester. Like, oh, I went to the counselors at the at the health center the therapy. Like, oh, I was applying to transfer. Like, oh yeah, like I actually really did hate frat parties. Like I just went because I thought you liked them. Mm-hmm. um So everybody's like putting on a brave face because they're new and it's scary. And they think like college is the best time of their life, which kind of is, but like also like it, it is like hard to transition. So don't like let other people trick you into thinking that your like feelings are out of normal.
1: Right. It is, it is a challenge in that sense of trying to figure out you've, you've been told that this is supposed to be fun and exciting. And so if you're not feeling that way, you think something's wrong, but actually no, that's, it's just a normal adjustment process and, um, you know, talk about it with other people and realize that you can make your own choices and uh, you can get help if you need it.
0: And then how can freshmen balance all these different new obligations? So they have their academic, social, extracurricular, et cetera.
1: That's a great question. I think this is really, um, this is, we talk, when I work with students at Ingenious, in you know, high school students, we talk about time management. Um, this is, again, time to learn a new set of time management skills, if you haven't already. As students will realize, as you can probably imagine, you know, the different, the, one of the biggest differences between college and high school is that in college, you'll have fewer hours in class. So each week, you may have, you know, a handful of class hours, maybe two or three class hours a day, and the rest of the time is yours. And you may need to work, you may may, you'll need to study, you'll need to eat, you'll need to relax, you also need to do your homework. And so, um, and because college courses, because they meet for fewer hours, they'll assign more work, so they can cover just as much ground. So uh, making a schedule is something to try to do early. Again, even if in high school you never made a schedule and you handled everything well, that's probably because you had teachers every day reminding you what you needed to do. Uh, in college, you won't have that. And your your um, your professor may give you a syllabus, which is a you know course plan at the beginning of the of the semester with assignments and may never refer to it again. And it's up to you to keep track of the due dates for assignments on that syllabus and exam dates, put in your own calendar and also block out time to study. Also block out time to relax. Maybe block out time, you know, Friday afternoon on your, on your weekly calendar, just to relax, um, not, don't schedule anything during that time, but make, as long as you're scheduling your other time to study and to do work outside of that, um, it's totally fine to like block off times on the schedule just for you. And because balance again is important.
0: I'm very type A, but my favorite part of college, like every new semester was having my planner, like a planner with space in it by day. And I would take all my syllabi and I would take all the dates for like when homework assignments were due, when tests were, essays were due, et cetera. And I'd put them all in and I'd color code them by class and also by like category of like, this is homework, this is an exam. And I'd like backtrack for like, okay, like if this is due this day, then I need to do it that day. And then every week of college, I'd look at my planner and be like, okay, what do we got this week? What do I need to prepare? And- I would, I would kill to have that kind of control back in life. Like I would love for like a syllabi to life.
1: Right. And it's, it is so much easier. I think today with smartphones, you can have that calendar with you at all times and and it can be transferred with your computer. So set something, you know, set up something that works for you, experiment with it the summer before college, you know, um, to see what kind of scheduling system works well for you. But that will, I think, alleviate a lot of stress and headache knowing when things are due
0: you can get really cute planners too. I like the Lily Pulitzer planners. They're very colorful. Um, but I'd also like to talk about extracurricular challenges. Did you ever have students come to you with like challenges regarding extracurriculars? I asked because at USC, the like landscape for school clubs, is, like incredibly competitive, every single club on campus, like even like the hiking club, like you would apply to get in and they rejected most people. So it was like my experience coming into college. I was like, oh, like I'm going to get involved in all these things. And then I got rejected by like 15 clubs and I was hmm. like, how am I supposed to make friends? And it definitely like really affected my self-esteem. And I can imagine that might be similar to other uh, like elite schools.
1: Right, you know, I didn't, in my role as an advisor, I didn't necessarily see a lot of that or deal with that from a lot of students, although I'm aware that such things happen. And, you know, as an academic advisor, I didn't really, I wasn't a University of Wisconsin, you know, undergraduate alum. So I, I couldn't speak to that in my own experience, but at Yale, that was a similar problem. Um, there's, you know, there can be, you um, there might be very competitive clubs. I remember acapella singing groups at Yale, oh. were like among the most competitive things yeah. you, could, you could try to be Don't a part forget of. Forget about it. Thankfully, I cannot sing. So I did not have to worry about like auditioning for those, but that was was stressful. And of course, being part of a band or orchestra or chamber group can be competitive, at especially these really highly selective schools. Yeah. So I think that um, that's again, something to be aware of, like when applying to colleges is to try to get a sense of the extracurriculars that you'd want to participate in and how easy and accessible they are. And if you are someone who really, some people thrive on that sort of competitiveness, they really want to be in an elite or or really high quality group. Others just want to have fun. I think no matter where you go, there'll be extracurricular activities that do both. You know, for example, if you just want to meet people and have fun, there might be club sports or intramural sports you can try. But if you really want to be like an, a musician, um, then there might be more competitive audition-based activities. And that's just something to research, you know, when you're looking at colleges and also when you're admitted to schools and you go to their admitted students day in the spring, ask current students what it's like on campus. Is it difficult to get involved in extracurriculars? Is it competitive? What's the climate like? That's a great question to ask in the spring of your senior year when you're trying to make that final choice of where to attend.
0: You can also meet people at like group fitness classes. You can do some Zumba. It's good for your physical and mental health. You make friends who also like Zumba. Um, And then I'd also say there's like, Sometimes you have to think on like a longer scale. So there's like years where maybe like freshman year of college, like you don't do amazing in your classes. Like you don't get into the clubs you want. Everything kind of feels like bad and you're not good enough. But then like sophomore year of college, suddenly all your hard work is paid off. And now like, oh, my gosh, you're president of this club and you got this like scholarship and you got this internship. So yeah, I think like the older you get, the more you realize like there's years where you're like thriving, and then there's the years where you're having to put in the work, but like a couple of years down the line, you will see the results eventually.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I agree.
0: So we never recommend really that students apply undecided and you can speak on that if you'd like, but Mm -hmm. for students who do enter undecided or are very kind of certain about changing their majors, considering changing their majors, or at least adding a second major, a minor, um, how do you recommend that they're like efficiently exploring their interests so that they can still graduate on
1: time? In in terms of advice, in terms of the application process, you're exactly right. We would never tell a student to list undecided on their application because it can send the wrong message about how much you've thought about what you want to do. Most students may be undecided. I know most high school students may be undecided about what specific major they want to study, but they're not undecided about the things they're interested in. They definitely have interests. And so the key then is when you arrive to college is to figure out how those interests fit into majors and programs. And that does take some exploration. So if you if you enter as a first-year student and you think you might be interested in majoring in economics or history or even you know chemistry, but you don't know for sure, then you should balance that, you want to balance exploration with those goals. So you want to do like, I think we an advisor might call it strategic exploration, you know? So if you're deciding between, if you're interested in all these subjects, let's say economics and history and chemistry, take a course in each during your first year. Uh, it won't set you back. As I mentioned, you do have time to explore in those first and second years. At the same time, I would also encourage a student who, let's say they're dead set on being a biology major, I would still encourage them take one or two biology courses at most in their first year, and then still take some other courses in in other areas that you just find interesting. And in many colleges, you'll also have some degree requirements that will require you to take some courses outside your, you know, your field, not just your field, but your kind of broad subject area. So if you're a science major, many schools will still require you to take some humanities and social science courses. So might as well get those, you know, take those courses early as a way to explore. So, So do both. You know, explore strategically, take classes that look interesting, take classes, which like an introductory class, um, introductory economics, for example, to try to figure out, is this something you'd like to take more of? Um, The earlier you take that course and the earlier you find out whether it is or isn't something you want to do, the better, the more easily you can plan then going forward.
0: And students can work with their academic advisors to like plan out those classes and make sure that everything for the next four years is plotted correctly, et cetera.
1: Mm -hmm. Another good, yeah, another good reason to meet with your academic advisor early in the process and and talk about how to do that.
0: Um, There's usually like an online platform where you can see like your degree requirements, what you've met, what you still need to meet. Um, And I think it's like a good habit to keep track of that yourself as well.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And again, an an advisor can show you how to do that, you know, navigate that system early on. That was always something I would go over with students, but it is a great thing to keep track of to just see where you are at the beginning and end of each semester.
0: And then there's a lot of like very common tips that we tell incoming freshmen, like, oh, you know, make sure you go to office hours. Um, are there other incoming tips that you maybe don't hear as often that you think they need to know?
1: I think we've covered some of them. I mean, are the biggest ones, which are in addition to go, things like going to office hours, which are, you know, for those high school students who, who haven't heard the word office hours, that is a time that a professor is, is usually available each week. Since in your high school, you might be able to run into a teacher at lunchtime or in the hallway. In college, you have to go seek them out. And office hours is when you know they'll be available. It's usually something they'll post. And we, as an advisor, I always encourage students to go to office hours, again, whether or not they were struggling in the class. I think most college students will take the mindset that they don't need to go to office hours unless they're struggling. But it's much better to go earlier just to kind of get to know the professor, show that you're interested in the course. I can tell you as someone who's taught university courses and held office hours, I liked to be visited during those because I was just sitting in my office and I could sit there and you know get work done. But I liked... This was time I set aside for students to come visit me. And so I didn't mind if students just wanted to come talk generally about the course or ask me questions. Go and ask a professor about their research. They will, here's a tip, they will love to talk about their own research, probably too much. So go ask them about things that they're interested in and they'll get to know you, you'll get to know them. If things go well, you could take another course with that professor and maybe they could even be someone who would write a letter of recommendation for you down the road. So that's a good tip. And the other one, which I'll just reiterate, which I've said before is meet with your advisors, your academic advisors early as an incoming freshman, you'll probably get a chance to meet them at an orientation, but schedule an individual appointment as soon as you get a chance to maybe within the first, you know, six weeks of school.
0: It was always very nervous to go to office hours. Would you say it'd be okay, like for someone to bring like a classmate to go together, just kind of like strengthen numbers if they're intimidated?
1: Yeah, totally. That would be that would be totally fine. Just but go together, go with a small group if you'd like. Professors do not, you know, they, they enjoy being visited. They would love that.
0: I have a controversial tip for freshmen. And it's that everybody tells you not to buy your textbooks before classes because the teachers might not use them. And I think that can be true for like big GEs, maybe like STEM classes. I don't know. I was a theater major. But for humanities classes, here's my tip. And it's that at USC, the bookstores, they sold used books that were significantly less expensive and you could rent the used books. Mm-hmm. And that was like the cheapest option by like, like you could pay like $6 to rent the book and you could like write in it too, the used version versus paying like $40 for the new ones. And you can return it too. So if you get to class after the first two weeks and the teacher like, you don't think you're gonna use the book, you can go return it to the bookstore. But if you wait those two weeks, the used books, they're gone. Everybody's mm-hmm. gotten the good deal. You gotta pay $40. So that's my tip I always told freshmen when I met them.
1: That's a good one. Yep. Yep. And that you can return, as you said, any book, usually within like 30 days. So it doesn't hurt to like make the purchase if you have the money and then um, take it back if you don't use it.
0: And then, so a kind of phrase that some freshmen might be familiar with is freshman forgiveness. Can you talk to me about like what that means? What kind of programs there are for freshmen who are struggling academically?
1: Yeah, I'll say, you know, freshman forgiveness. Um, it's not a term that I we used at Wisconsin, but I think what that term or concept means is that there are schools that have programs or opportunities for for freshmen who may be struggling in a class, maybe failing a class, to take that course again or to convert a grade to like a, a pass fail by the end of the semester, essentially to get forgiveness in some way for what might be turning into a rather than having a bad grade on their on their transcript from their first semester. And so my advice here would be to kind of look at look at what programs may exist at your schools I know that Ellen you shared to me USc's program at um, at Yale students could take uh, could choose to take courses pass fail I think they called it credit D or fail so you could get a pass or if you got a D you would get a D um, or an F and your your instructor didn't know if you were taking the course for pass fail they saw you as just another student and so you could the idea there was to take the course without the pressure of having to get a uh, pressure of worrying about the grade um, and if so, if it was a really difficult course where you were worried that you might get a C and you didn't want that to impact your transcript, but you still really wanted to take the subject, you could take the course pass fail and get credit for it, you know, but not worry about the grade now. At each school, when you look up these different um, possibilities and requirements, be sure to read the fine print on these, because in some cases, um, a course that's taken pass fail, it might not count towards your major. I think at Wisconsin, we had an opportunity like this, you could take a kind of pass fail course, but it would not, but some majors might not accept it as if it's a core course for a major. And students don't always know this when they sign up for a course pass fail. So, the, imagine if you're a biology major and you're taking one of the core biology sequence courses and you decide to take it pass fail because you're worried about the grade and you pass the course, but then you realize that it won't count for your biology major because you took it pass fail. That would be upsetting, right? So, this is another good reason to talk to advisors about for freshman forgiveness or other plans. And again, advisors are great people to talk to if there's questions about this. But I do in general like. Like it when there are opportunities for freshmen in particular to be able to challenge themselves academically without the stress of a poor grade, because it is difficult to get some poor grades in in their first year, which will stick on your GPA no matter how well you do the next three years. So do kind of look around at those programs and look at opportunities, you know, to take to challenge yourself while perhaps minimizing the risk that may exist from a poor grade.
0: And students might also like, unfortunately, kind of have to be proactive about their grades. For me, it wasn't uncommon for professors to like never put grades in. And so you just you're like, do I have an A? Do I have an F? Like, we'll find out at the end of the semester. So you like if you're if you're really concerned, like, you know, reach out to your professor Um, if it's really a problem and you've like exhausted options with your TA professor, you can probably escalate it to the head of the department or probably first speak with your academic advisor to make sure you're not like stepping on anybody's toes. but.
1: Yeah, great. It, that's a great question, Ellen. I mean, um, talk to your academic advisor about these. This can be, diff, you know, this, this can be a challenge because, like you said, in many college courses, I think even more so in like STEM courses, you might your first grade might be on a midterm exam, which might be halfway through the semester. And you might not get the, the grade back until two thirds of the way to the semester. And so suddenly you find in November when you've got most of the course done that your grade's not very good. And then maybe you don't. You, you only have a final exam to make it up, and so this is this can be tricky. And so talking with your instructor, um, talking with your advisor are really are really the ways to go here to see what. First of all, figure out what is my actual grade. What do I have to do to ensure that I get a good one? Um, and if instructors aren't giving you a clear answer, you talk to your advisor. They'll have. I would talk to your advisor before emailing anyone else in the department because uh, department chairs are just colleagues of professors and may not have any power over, over them. Uh, advisors, though, can help you, I think, be polite, but also persistent in getting those answers.
0: And we've already discussed a little bit about like mental health in college, but it's really not uncommon for students to struggle with their mental health because of the stress, because of, you know, the big life change transition. Also, I think just like statistically mental health issues will pop up around that age. Um, So what other support systems can students use? How can they get ahead of these potential mental health struggles? How can they just take care of themselves?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think students these days are much are, certainly that my generation, uh, are much better about accessing mental health resources. And I think colleges have done a lot in the last 10 years in particular to improve their mental health services. Um, I think that, you know, some of the best programs that exist on campus are, are the ones that I mentioned earlier, that there are many drop-in counseling opportunities on campus. You know, many... Many campuses have a main kind of health center. They may have one specifically for mental health or maybe part of their broader health, you know, student health center. And at that sort of place, you can make an appointment with, a, you know, a professional. But college, many colleges also have these kind of satellite offices around campus. If it's especially if it's a bigger campus, and many will have drop-in counseling in dorms. You know, so there might be in your dorm there might be a counselor who's available on Tuesday nights. You know, from seven to nine p.m., and anybody can just go drop in without an appointment. Take advantage of those. Look for look know what those resources are when you arrive on campus. Know where you can find them, and if you are just want to talk to somebody, like you're not sure if you have. A problem that needs, you know, how, what kind of problem you might have, if you have a problem at all, uh, go to these informal sessions. You can talk for as, as little or as much as you'd like, and then they can direct you, give, give you some thoughts on next steps. Many students, I feel, even if they go to these drop in counseling sessions, just going to those and talking to somebody else for 30 minutes makes them feel so much better. And that's kind of like, they realized that's all I needed was just somebody to talk to for a bit, to have a chance to think through my, the problems I'm facing in a way that you may not want to share, you know, with a roommate or a friend or classmate immediately. So take a look for where those resources are and where you can find them on your campus when you get there.
0: And these resources aren't always like the best, like advertised. So sometimes you may need to do like some research to find what's available. Like I love my school had like therapy dogs sometimes that would come on campus and that wasn't like super commonly advertised.
1: Right. And even the drop-in advising, I know at Madison, that's been a big push that the university has has been trying to publicize in the last couple of years. Um, But As a student, you might not notice it unless, you know, you, first of all, probably many of the announcements come in the form of an email. So if you don't, if you don't, you're not reading your university emails, and frankly, you know, you get so many of them that it's easy to just not read them that, you know, read those, see what's available. Also look at the. you know, it might see a poster in your dorm. That's often how they might advertise these sorts of things. So just kind of be aware if you see something, you know, a resource noted in your phone, set a reminder or something like that.
0: That's what I was going to say is read your email, like unsubscribe from all the emails you don't need to keep your inbox clean, but read your email. I once got like a free glamping trip Mm because I was like the first person who saw the email about it and signed up first. Right. Free glamping Mm -hmm. trip. It was amazing. So read your email. And then it's also, unfortunately, some students will report that they kind of like struggle to get in touch with their academic advisors. Maybe this is a problem at like bigger universities where the academic advisors are have like a much larger like load of students. So what do you recommend for students if they're just struggling in that way?
1: Good question. I think um, certainly at Wisconsin, it, it's a big university. There were um, I'd like to like to think that we were able to serve all the students that that re- you know reached out to us. But I I can understand that it, that I do know some students, especially who are not in the honors program, who had trouble finding you know who, who is my advisor, or where can I find them. Um, it does take some you know a little bit of research. Sometimes a student simply hadn't looked on their student information profile where they have an email address, you know, for an advisor. But, you know, and I think most of the time advisors will respond. If they don't, your advisor is probably part of a advising office with other advisors. And I would suspect that that advising office has drop-in hours at some time. So, at probably most schools, you know, we had we had hours where students could sign up for a 30-minute appointment, but then we also had drop-in advising from, you know, 9 to 11 on a Tuesday morning or 3 to 5 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon, and students could drop in. So if you've emailed your advisor and they didn't respond, or they didn't respond, or you an you know, an answer quickly and you haven't heard from them, go to the drop-in advising. Many offices will also have peer advisors who work with the professional advisors, and they will also have drop-in advising hours. So go to the website of the advising office at your school, see when they might have drop-in advising, and just go show up. And once you do that, someone will be sure, I think, that you're connected with an advisor, either a professional or a peer advisor.
0: I think sometimes students are like maybe a little bit too reliant on their advisors. Like they expect their advisor will just make sure everything happens for them. And I have met people who like had to stay an extra semester at college because they didn't realize they were missing one GE or one of their mm-hmm. transfer credits didn't transfer correctly. So how can students be you know proactive and take initiative to stay on top of their own four-year course plan?
1: Right. Well, as you mentioned, definitely keep track of your course progress each semester um, and you can... You can figure out how to do this in your first year and keep doing it. Meet with your advisor, they can often catch things. We would often review progress with students. It's also another reason to try to be part of a small program like the honors program. For example in, in honors we would run a check for all the graduating seniors before their final semester to make sure that they were on track for graduation and we would this was you know automated so it wasn't always perfect but it allowed us to identify students who were like missing that one class who uh, and who had forgotten you know to sign up for this one more either degree or major requirement that they would need to graduate and we always caught a handful of students each year that for whatever reason, might just have missed, you know, made an honest mistake and and would have had to spend and take an extra course over the summer, which is not fun. So, um, but we were only, we were able to do that because we were part of a smaller program with smaller number of students. And I think the bigger offices did that as well on campus, but obviously they're bigger. So, um, Being, again, part of a smaller, either school or program, maybe a small program within a big school is another way to ensure that somebody is probably taking a closer look at your progress and will provide another safety net to make sure that you get where you need to go.
0: In addition to exploring their interests, you know, what they want to study, what they want to major in, freshmen are also needing to explore like future career paths. Um, So how can they start doing that? I think like a lot of students are unaware of just like how broad their options are, how many different careers they could get into with like, like a humanities major like I said I majored in theater look at me now
1: yeah this is, there's a couple of ways i mean formally every campus will have a career advising office um, so and that will be separate from academic advising and these are advisors who are specialists in career advising and they can they can begin working with students as early as their first year to do exactly that to strategically explore career paths and you can go to them with without any plans and they can help you explore, or you can go to them with a specific plan, say, I want to go to law school, and they can help you get there. I think many students sometimes avoid going to the career advisors because they think that they need to have a career idea in place before they go, but that's not the case. So that's that. I would go check that out. The other thing I would do just more informally is like many campuses will have events such as guest speakers or workshops or other opportunities to meet people who are currently working in different fields. So look for those announcements on campus. You know, go to that lecture by an artist that you're interested, that you admire. Maybe you'll learn more about what it's like to work in that field. Those are all kind of active things you can do. Career advisors can help you look for internships over the summer, even short things you can do over winter break or spring break that can be either a study abroad or exploring a a new career opportunity. Um, There's also usually special advisors for law school and medical school. Certainly we had those that um, have Wisconsin, and I think other schools will also have those. So if you're interested in a particular graduate school path, then there's usually specific advisors for that as well.
0: Are there other resources or like additional considerations for students who are considering medical school, law school, PhD, master's, MBA?
1: I think, um, speak, so speaking to those advisors would be my first tip. Um, I think outside of that, trying to dream your summers or perhaps spring breaks to try to shadow people in those fields. This is usually a requirement for medical school to shadow a doctor uh, because they want to know what that you know something about what the medical field is like. But if you were looking at law school or looking for another career path during your summer, you know, try to find those internships or or even just shadowing someone for a short period to find out what those jobs are like. Um, Some advisors may also recommend something called informational interviewing. If so, if you're interested in being a lawyer, for example, you can kind of send a cold, cold email, you know, introduction to several people and ask if they'll have coffee with you. Maybe a prof- maybe a law professor even who's worked as a lawyer and there are many of them uh, and ask if you can, or go to their office hours if they're a professor and ask them about what their career experience has been like. I have to stress that that professors and whether they're in law or other areas, they love to talk about what they do and their backgrounds. And so they really would not mind if you dropped into their office hours and asked them about their field. Uh, if you were interested, for example, and same thing, if you are interested in a history PhD, go drop in to your history professor's office hours and ask them about those sorts of career paths. They'll be happy to tell you about that and about their own, their own path. So that's a great way to start as well as going to the specific advisors.
0: Yeah, my classmates and I had like great formative experiences freshman year asking our like favorite theater professor, our theater studies professor to like go to dinner. I think we like got dinner with her multiple times on campus, like saw a show with her. And yeah, it's just like great to like get that, like see that professors aren't so scary. They're like real adults and to have that Mm -hmm. support from them. And there's also usually uh, like honors and awards offices on campus that'll help you if you're interested in applying to something like Fulbright. Mm -hmm. There's usually like specific advisors for that as well. And when would you say students need to start thinking about these professional opportunities? So um, it's easy to get really overwhelmed as freshmen, but when do they actually need to start thinking like, oh gosh, like I need to be applying to internships, et cetera?
1: That's a good question. I think that's, you know, that's very much an individual question. I think that students, I would not, I don't think a first or even second year student needs to worry too much about a professional career path if they don't have one in mind yet. Certainly by the time you get to, you know, junior and senior year, you'll want to start thinking about it, what you'll do after graduation. Uh, And if you want to attend graduate school right after you graduate, uh, then that takes some prior planning, at least the year before you graduate. But um, in your first and second year, I would say focus on your courses, focus on what you're learning for the most part. But certainly at the same time, if you're a first or second year student and you see a really neat internship opportunity or study abroad or or something that you look thinks looks really cool that could be related to a career, go ahead and take it. Don't wait. It certainly doesn't hurt to start early. So, you know, I think that's something more to consider in the third and fourth year, but the earlier you start, the more you'll learn. I mean, professional exploration is as much about figuring out which careers you do not want to pursue as the ones that you do want to pursue. So it's actually great to be able to do an internship in a field you thought you might like. After your first year, but then realize after doing the internship, that this isn't actually a field you want to work in. That's fantastic. That allows you to then move forward and focus on other opportunities.
0: Yeah, I did some student films on campus and like really quickly realized I like hated film acting like it was not for me and I was like, okay like, this is good to know like this is very important career insight. And then so for students who are struggling academically, socially or any other way, um, when do you think it's time for them to consider transferring versus like when is it maybe a little too early, like they're jumping the gun and not giving themselves enough time to acclimate?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. I mean, <clears throat> the um, I certainly had students at Wisconsin who came to me who were thinking about this, you know, either they were very eager to transfer or they or the thought had just crossed their mind. And I really think it's an individual. This is really and the answer to this question will be different for every student. In some cases there may be academic reasons to transfer. In those cases, those can be pretty clear-cut. Maybe you have realized that you want to pursue a career and your school doesn't offer a degree that's really well suited to it, but another school that you could transfer to does offer it. That could—that's a very clear-cut and and good reason to transfer, and it can help you make the case when you in that transfer application why you'd be a good transfer candidate. Socially can be you know can be tricky. I mean, it is the case where there might be a school or community where you're just not happy for one reason or another. I, at Wisconsin. Um, I can tell you at a big school like Wisconsin, I can tell you that I've spoken to students who've come to Wisconsin, speak for one reason or another, and they have not felt like they fit in. There's at Wisconsin, there's a big focus on on a typical football weekend, you know, in the fall, everyone goes to the football game and and drinks a lot on Saturday. And that's kind of the only social opportunity on the weekend in in September, October, and November. And that's just not for everybody. And um, there's some students who've told me that, they would like to go somewhere else. That's that's fine um, to kind of realize that. What you want to think about, I mean, you, you'll also want to think about um, you know, before you do transfer, that is a big move. Uh, you want to kind of explore all possibilities at your current campus to see if you can solve whatever challenges you may be having, whether they're academic or social. And you also want to be sure that at the campus you're transferring to, that they have the resources and the environment and community that you're looking for in which you think you can succeed. So it's a serious, you know, it shouldn't be done. It's not a decision that should be taken lightly. You should really think about it a lot and explore your options. Um, I will tell you that having worked with a handful of students transferring through the, you know, we've worked at ingenious with people who who are transferring, you need to have a very compelling reason in your application to transfer, especially if you're at a very good school. Like if you're at, if you're at the University of Wisconsin and you're looking to transfer to, you know, an Ivy League school, it's not enough to say, you know, the University of Pennsylvania is a better school and I want to transfer to it after my sophomore year because the admissions officers at penn will say you know wisconsin is is a great school there's a lot of resources there what about penn makes it what what can you do at penn that you can't do at wisconsin and so it's got to be kind of you have to have a good really good specific reason when you write that application of why you want to transfer and the social challenges personal challenges they can be part of that but they probably shouldn't be the main reason for transferring because if i when i was at yale i read a lot of transfer applications and it was difficult to accept someone who was who said that I just want to, I want to transfer because I don't fit in at my current school. We wouldn't, if and if that was the case, it would be hard to have confidence that, it would, that they would also fit in at Yale, right? What exactly would be the difference? So again, thinking about when you make that transfer decision, what are the reasons for it and how could you articulate those on a transfer application will be an important part of it.
0: And my last few questions are just for high school students who are listening and thinking ahead towards college. So for current high school students, how can they prepare themselves now for the level of rigor rigor required in college? And we already discussed this with COVID about like, you know, study strategies, time management.
1: Yeah, great question. I think certainly if you have the opportunity, take some college courses, maybe in your local community. Um, That Sometimes that could be at a community college or a local university. You could also take some summer college courses through summer programs. Um, Some of those are, some of those summer programs are specifically for high school students, but they're, but they're college level. Other summer programs are are college courses that other college students are also taking, but you can take as a high school student. That can be a way to challenge yourself. I would also look at the school that you're attending. Many more schools these days have pre, pre pre-college summer programs where you can take some college courses as an incoming freshman. And in some cases, those can count for credit towards your degree. In other cases, they're just maybe for fun. Uh, I know Wisconsin has one. I know that other schools have have um programs like this. So look and see if your university or college has a pre-college program the summer before where you can take some courses uh, and try it out.
0: I did pre-college at Carnegie Mellon. It was a wonderful experience. It's obviously it's expensive, but I definitely recommend students. It's like gets you really excited for college. You see all the benefits, you kind of get like a quick cheat sheet. Like I learned, like, I did not want to live in a communal dorm, with, like a communal bathroom. So I lived freshman year in like a nice little apartment. Um, yeah. So you learned some good stuff. And then we also talk a lot with our students about school fit and um, your work as an advisor or in admissions. Do you find that school fit correlates with college success? So are students who end up at a school that's not a good fit, are they maybe like less
1: successful? Well, you know, in, in part it depends on how we define fit. You know, there can be academic fit, of course, and then there can be kind of a social fit. And we've already talked a bit about how those can those can present their own challenges. Students that I work with at engineers who are often looking at top schools, you know, at least the let's say the top 50 colleges in the US are Look, If you're looking at one of those schools, most, the vast majority of those schools have everything you need academically to succeed. And so I would be pretty confident that um, sending a student to any of those top 50 schools that no matter what their major might be, even if it's different from what the school sees as its strength, they would probably be able to find great professors and great programs. So academic fit is probably one that I would be less worried about when when I'm working as a a college counselor and thinking about fit, because I think that uh, students can be successful almost anywhere. Um, again, that's with the exception uh, that you might not be looking, you know some students are looking for a specialized program. and if that's the case, that's different. But for the most part, there's plenty of academic resources at lots of places. Socially though and campus wise, I do think you should take a closer look at what fit means. and that could relate to, you know, think about what's what's worked for you and what hasn't worked in high school, if you have um feel like you've gotten a lot of personal individualized small class support in high school and you've really, benefited from that, then maybe going to a school where you can be in smaller classes, smaller programs, and have a chance to meet with professors, be taught by professors more frequently, then maybe a smaller college is for you. Uh, Maybe a bigger college could be more of a challenge. I would think about that. Um, I would also think about, would you want to be in an urban, you know, environment in a big city? You know, if you're not used to big city life, that could be a big adjustment uh, it can also affect campus life. I mean, if you go to a, a big college in New York City, for example, that could be really exciting for some students because you can go out and enjoy the nightlife, you know, every weekend. But on the other hand, if you're looking for a campus-focused life, it may be disappointing to see the dorm empty on a Friday night because everyone's gone out in the city uh, and they're not spending time on campus. So think about if you know, if you want that urban environment versus maybe a more rural campus focused or even suburban. Those are all important factors to can consider for fit, uh, but I think most importantly, again, and I tell my all my students this with added genius is that in your college application program um, application process, you a goal should be if you're applying to say 10 or 12 schools, your goal should be to get into four or five or six of those in the spring, and then have a chance in April to go to admitted students days for more than one of them for your final choices and to really take a close look before you make that final choice. You know, that's of course, some students may apply early decision to a school and their their process is done and that's great. But for most students, you'll have a choice to make in April of your senior year. And that's a good time to really take a close look at fit. You'll be a little bit older, you'll be almost finishing high school by that time. You'll be a little bit more mature, and you'll also get to look at some colleges and talk to, to current college students who I think will be a little bit more honest and forthcoming about what it's really like to go to that school. So that's an important part of the choice. The choice process is that spring of your senior year.
0: My admitted students day, for some reason, was the same day as the Los Angeles Festival of Books, which is held on campus at USC. So there was easily like two hundred thousand people on campus. Don't know who Mm -hmm. planned it like that. I was walking around. I was like, I I guess this seems fine. I can't Mm -hmm. see anything, but but it was Mm -hmm. also cool to see that was like such a cultural hub. Right. And are there any considerations where maybe a student should not apply to an honors program?
1: Um, you know, usually it doesn't hurt to apply. Uh, you can, at most of them, you can drop out, you know, without any repercussions. That was the case at Wisconsin. Students could certainly, I would, I would usually, if a student was uncertain at Wisconsin, I would usually recommend they apply to the honors program. And then if they decide that they don't want to complete the honors requirements, it, it was okay to drop them. It didn't show up on their transcript or or look bad in any way. So usually it's worth trying. Um, it's one of those things to explore, I think, in your first or second year. Doing an honors program, the reason to do an honors program, I think, is not because it looks good on your degree or it's a nice little credential to show. I don't know if it'll help you get you know, into a better grad school or a better job. But the reason to do it, I think, is if it offers you academic opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have. At Wisconsin, as an honor student, you could get access to small seminar classes with faculty. Um, there were some other cool opportunities that only were open to honor students. So this, I would always say, was the reason to do it. Not not simply to have honors on your, on your degree.
0: Yeah, that glamping trip to the desert was through my honors program.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Although nice. I did see a tarantula, which was like very traumatizing <laughs> last but not least of course do you have any additional words of wisdom to share
1: I don't I don't think so other than I hope hopefully I've shared some already I would just say um I would just say that the, your first year of college is an exciting opportunity to kind of start things over again like you've finished the the college application process you've finished high school you've hope you know you're hopefully really proud of all your accomplishments and again the application process can make it seem like you are setting in stone a certain life path at the end of high school but when you're just starting college, all of these all, all sorts of different opportunities are in front of you so really use that time to explore and to consider again all the different things you could do with your life um, don't just have tunnel vision and think that you have to move forward in one path or another. So that would be my biggest piece of advice for first year students.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Nick. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight to strategies for college success. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or would like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag #InsideAdmissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.